You're listening to the Crossroads Grace Podcast, a podcast of Crossroads Grace Community Church. To learn more about our gathering times and ways you can get involved, check out our website at crossroadsgrace.org. Hey, it is Christmas time. It has got here, right? Halloween is gone, and in the past, uh, Thanksgiving, uh, hopefully your Thanksgiving leftovers are also in the past and out of the way and everything, and now it's on to Christmas, and I love Christmas. I really do. I love it. I know it's a busy time of the year, but I love Christmas. Ever since I was a little kid, I always loved it. The lights, the Christmas trees, the TV shows, right? Merry Christmas, Charlie Brown, The Grinch, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I never liked Frosty the Snowman. I don't know why. Personal taste. But anyway, I love those shows, right? How many of you remember, by the way, this is one thing I really loved when I was a kid. How many of you remember the Sears Christmas Wish Book? Anybody remember that? Yeah, yeah, man, that thing would come to our house somehow. I don't know if it came in the mail or whatever, but I would burn that thing up, looking at all the toys and everything. I love it all. And I have some good news for you today. There are 384 days until Christmas, 2023. (laughs) So start your shopping early. That means there's only 22 days until Christmas 2022, right? Help me there, right? And that counts today. So Christmas sneaks up on you, right? But as we think about Christmas, one of the traditions that are so memorable are the songs we sing. It's those tunes that we we know and they get stuck in our head like jingle bells, right? Jingle bells will get stuck in your head all day. Now, I just mentioned it. It'll be stuck in your head, so you're welcome. But the reason these songs are so powerful is that they have memories attached to them. They're memorable to us. They stir emotions and feelings in us that seem to take us to another time and place, right? And there's a name for that. It's called musical nostalgia. It's when music brings you back to another time and another place. It doesn't just happen with Christmas songs. It happens all year long, right? There's certain songs you can hear. It's like, oh, man, I remember when I was a little kid sitting in the car with my mom hearing that song, right? And those emotions are tied to those memories, and those emotions can range anywhere from happiness, joy, peace, love, to hurt, embarrassment, and not-so-positive feelings. Songs can teach us things and remind us of things that are important to us, and the Christmas songs are no exception, right? In fact, these songs of Christmas teach us more than we realize. We have this habit of just singing over these amazing truths about God, and so that's why we're so excited about starting a new series today called Christmas Playlist. We're gonna, for the next few weeks, we're going to take a Christmas carol that's familiar to all of us, and we're just going to tear it apart, right? We're going to find just the familiar uh, truths in these songs and then find the not-so-familiar truths in these songs about the Christmas story. So we're going to dive right in. All right, we just sang it. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Right, what a great tune. We all know the first verse. Don't don't we all know like the first verse of every Christmas song? It's like the second, third, and fourth, have no idea, right? But this song right here was written by a guy named Philip Brooks, okay? And Philip Brooks was a pastor of of the Holy Trinity Church in Philadelphia, and, and he was big time. 
for back then. In 1868, he was big time. He was considered like America's pastor. He was really well known. Kind of like, you know, if you remember Billy Graham, just really well known, or, or Brian Hunt, really well known, right? America's pastor, right? <laughs> he was so well respected that he was the one who preached the, the funeral for Abraham Lincoln after Abraham Lincoln's assassination. But as the war had come to an end, and the assassination of President Lincoln, along with the responsibilities of pastoring a church of over a 1,000 people, man, Philip Brooks was tired. He was burnt out. We all know what that feels like, just drained. And so his church came to him and said, hey, we think you need to get away and take a sabbatical. And he said, thank you very much. I think I will. So he took a sabbatical. He went to Israel, right? He went to Israel. He arrived in Jerusalem on Christmas Eve. And then when he was there, he felt really inspired to go six or seven miles further to go to Bethlehem and check it out. And everybody there was like, ah, you don't want to do that, man. That six or seven miles is pretty dicey. It's a lot of thieves and uh, robbers and bandits and all this stuff. You don't want to go. But he knew he needed to go. So he borrowed a horse and off he went the six or seven miles to Bethlehem. And he got there at dusk on December 24th, and he rode through this tiny town of Bethlehem. And when he did that, he thought back to that first Christmas, right? And while he was doing that, a renewed, refreshed rush of love for Jesus came over him in that moment. And he would later tell his family that that moment was so overpowering that he felt like singing in his soul. And that's a good definition for worship, singing in his soul. And it wasn't until years later that he finally sat down and wrote out what that moment meant to him. And he partnered with a man named Lewis Redman, who is a composer, and together they put together the song, A Little Town of Bethlehem, and it came to life. So every Christmas now, the song is heard on radios, in department stores, uh, it's sung at church, it's everywhere. And all because of the emotion that came on one man stopping to think about that moment in Bethlehem so long ago. Songs are powerful. Now remember, the songs we're going to talk about over the next few weeks, they're not scripture, right? This right here is scripture. This is the word of God, the Bible. But the heart and inspiration of these Christmas songs are deeply scriptural, and that's what we're going to be unpacking as we go, right? So let's just jump into that first verse. The very first line of the very first verse says it all. O little town of Bethlehem. The second word in, O little, right? Little was right. In fact, Bethlehem was very, very, very small. It seemed like the most unlikely place that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would be born, right? How many of you grew up in a small town of 5,000 or less? Anybody here? Anybody? I think I see some hands. Okay. How about 2,000 or less? Anybody would admit it? There we go, right? Let's go crazy. There's no prizes for this game, but let's try it. How about 1,000 or less? Yeah, okay, if I had a prize, you would be the winner, but unfortunately, we don't. But, so, anyway, that's kind of like Bethlehem, right? Bethlehem was a very, very, very small town. At the time of Christ, it was a quiet little shepherding community, and scholars 
kind of disagree on the population back then. Anywhere from 150 to 1,000 were there. But anyway, slice it, it was small, right? And, and pretty unimpressive. There was no Walmart. There was no McDonald's. Man, there was no Starbucks. There wasn't even a Dollar General, right? <laughs> you know a town is small when there's no Dollar General around, right? And so what was God thinking? What was he thinking? Why not a city like Jerusalem or Athens or Rome, right? Big, powerful cities, logical to us, logical places that the Savior of the world would come from. These big cities would seem like they have it all together, right? All the power. But Bethlehem seems so small and insignificant. So what was God thinking? Why Bethlehem? Well, listen, although it was small in size, Bethlehem was huge in God's overall plan leading up to the birth of Christ and beyond. So check this out. About a thousand years before the birth of Christ, it was a time in history when Saul, King Saul, right, uh, king over Israel, he had been rejected by God as the king over Israel, God wanted a new king to reign over Israel. So God sent his prophet Samuel to Bethlehem to meet Jesse and Jesse's sons in order to pick from Jesse's sons the next king who's going to replace Saul. And even though all of Jesse's sons were big and strong, right, the Lord said no to all of them. And then Samuel asked Jesse, he said, do you have any more sons? We've been through seven here. Do we have any more sons that, that we can pick from? And Jesse said, well, yeah, I got one more. This little guy named David, he's young and all he's good for is tending sheep. He's out in the field right now. And so we pick up the story right there in 1 Samuel 16, verses 12 and 13. And you can follow along on the screen. Maybe you got your Bible with you. Or you can follow along on the app, the Crossroads app that you can download, right? So here we go. Verse 12, chapter 16 of Isaiah, or 1 Samuel. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He, this little puny David, right? He was glowing with health and, a, and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. I bet that went over really great. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. David was born in Bethlehem, and he was also anointed the king in Bethlehem, the king over Israel. Now, fast forward about 300 years to 700 BC. Follow me here. You're hanging on. That's good. 700 years before the birth of Christ, there was a prophet of God named Micah. And Micah lived in a town 25 miles from Jerusalem, and I will butcher this name, but it was called Morsheth Gath. Just trust me on that, okay? He, and, and Micah had a heart for the lowly and the less fortunate of the society, the lame, the afflicted, you know? His heart and passion didn't beat along with the big and powerful and wealthy and rich and military strength and all that stuff, these big guys that were found in the larger cities. He didn't, he didn't roll that way. And Micah delivered this prophecy 700 years before Christ was born. Listen to this. It's in the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. It says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, 
Out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Okay? Now, something about that. The first thing to notice is that Micah says, Bethlehem Ephrathah. And I'm probably butchering that too, but trust me again. Bethlehem Ephrathah. Now, seriously, do we sing, O little town of Bethlehem Ephrathah? No, it doesn't really roll off the tongue right, right? So we don't. But why would Micah call it that? Why would he take time to go? Well, that's because there was two Bethlehems in Israel. There was two, much like we have uh, duplicate city names in the United States. We have Cleveland, Tennessee, and Cleveland, Ohio. We have Manhattan, Kansas, Manhattan, New York. We have Portland, Oregon, Portland, Maine. You get the idea, right? And so on this, on this map that I'm going to show you right here, there's two Bethlehems. One of the Bethlehems is up in the north near Nazareth, right, where Joseph, Mary and Joseph lived. And the second one is 75 miles south, just about, and it's right outside Jerusalem. And its proper name, the southern one, is Bethlehem Ephrathah, which is precisely what the prophet Micah said. God was being very specific in which Bethlehem was to fulfill the prophecy. A thousand years before the birth of Christ, David was selected out of his seven bigger, stronger brothers and anointed king over Israel in Bethlehem Ephrathah. 700 years before the birth of Christ, Micah prophesied the birth of the Messiah, the Son of God, would happen in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Bethlehem was not insignificant. It was significant. You know, there are many prophecies concerning the birth of Christ in the Old Testament. I want to show you one more. In the book of Isaiah, let me find it here. The book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 9, verses 6 through 7 Uh, It was prophesied that the Messiah was to come and he would come from the lineage of David and reign forever. Listen to this. And we sang this just a minute ago so beautifully. Listen, uh, chapter 9 of Isaiah, uh, verse 6. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So it was prophesied that the Messiah was going to reign on David's throne forever with no end. And this lineage is confirmed in the New Testament as well. In Luke chapter 2, verse 11, it says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David, who is Christ the Lord. In the city of David. In Luke 1.32, when the angel appeared to Mary to tell her she would give birth to Christ the Lord, it said, Your child will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the, uh, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. In Luke chapter 18, verse 39, a blind man cried out, son of David, have mercy on me. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem for the last time, which we know is Palm Sunday, in Matthew 21, 9, it says, the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna 
in the highest. All of this is telling us loud and clear that Jesus is a king that reigns forever. Now that alone is enough to impress us, right? That's good enough for me. But listen, I love how this song about little Bethlehem reflects on God fulfilling the prophecies from years ago. But we also learn that Bethlehem represents something else. Listen to this. The last line in the first uh, verse of the song says, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Okay, now let's think about that for just a second. Two things strike me about this line that I just absolutely floor me, and I love it. Okay, first of all, let's, let's, just, let's just look at it. The hopes and fears of all the years. Hopes and fears. That literally says it all. Doesn't that encompass hopes and fears? Doesn't that encompass just about everything mankind is all about? Everything that mankind will experience. Hopes and fears pretty much make up the spectrum of what man will experience in life. And if we dig in even deeper, we have to ask what hopes is the author of the song Brooks talking about in this song? Like I'm guessing that he's not talking about when we say, if we say, I hope I win the lottery, right? I don't know if that's the hopes he's talking about. I think Brooks was causing us to think of deeper hopes, hopes of the human soul down deep inside, and they might sound like this. I hope God is real. I hope he loves me. I hope there really is a heaven. Maybe some of us struggle with those questions. Maybe those are the hopes that are deep inside that, that kind of scare us. You know, what do people say when you go to a funeral? You always, you always hear people talk about the, the one who passed. They'll say, uh, he or she is in a better place, right? That phrase drips with hope, right? That's translated as, I hope there's a better place than this dark world of sickness and suffering. But that phrase reads hopes and fears, right? So what are the fears that Brooks, the author of the song, was referring to? We've all experienced fear at some time or another. All of us have. Listen, I owned a business in Florida before I moved here, right? And believe it or not, just looking at me, you might not, I owned a nuisance wildlife trapping business. Thank you very much. Yes, I did. If you had raccoons in your attic, this guy gets them out for you, okay? Now, I love the animals, and it was, it was really a lot of fun, except the scary ones, like this little guy right here. Yeah, that is not Photoshop. That is the South Florida poisonous man-eating possum right there. Yes, yes. But I don't know. I don't know if Brooks was talking about fears like that, okay? I don't know, that's pretty scary. But I think Brooks, when he talks about hopes and fears, I think he's referring to a, a deeper, soulful fear that without the hope of Christ can flood the human heart. A frightening diagnosis, right? Financial setback, a relationship you can't repair, fear of rejection, 
Fear of being rejected again. Fear of the unknown. A global pandemic that disrupts every aspect of life. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Now, I love the last part of that line. Are met in thee tonight. The word thee, believe it or not, the word thee refers to not Jesus, but the, the town of Bethlehem. It refers to the town, not Jesus. In other words, it's saying fears like the ones I mentioned earlier and many, many others got introduced to Jesus that dark night in Bethlehem. They got introduced to the one whose kingdom shall know no end. All of our hopes and fears are no match for the God who loves us enough that he sent his only son to earth as a helpless infant born in Bethlehem to eventually go to the cross for our sin and be resurrected again on that Easter morning. All of this to show us that we can trust God with all our hopes and all our fears all the time. Now, you might be saying that's easier said than done. And I understand that. I understand trusting God is not our natural default setting. That's why I want to tell you we have to be intentional about growing our faith in God. Here's what I mean. If you want to get to the point in your life where you can surrender all your hopes, all your fears through all the years, if you want to surrender them to God, there's something you have to do. The first thing we have to intentionally do is we have to learn more about God to whom we are surrendering our hopes and our fears to. 2 Peter 3.18 says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. It makes it a lot easier to trust God with everything when we know him better, Right? We use this methodology all the time. If you gotta make a big decision, if you, if you gotta make a financial decision, you gotta buy a, a car or a house or a big appliance, if you gotta pick a doctor or a mechanic or a hairstylist or pick a restaurant, right? Whatever, we read up on those things as much as we can, right? We go online and we get reviews and we check those reviews and we even ask around, hey, do you know a good doctor? Yeah, yeah, I know it's a great doctor. And we get all this stuff, right? We get as much information as we can so we know what the next steps will be. And that's the same way we get to know God better. We grab everything we can to learn about him, read about him. Now this, it says in John 17, three, now this is eternal life that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. So you might be saying, okay, still easier said than done. How do I do this? How do I get to know God better? Well, number one, intentionally read your Bible every day. Not the whole thing, okay? That's, that's a lot in one day. Small bites at first. Bigger bites as you go along. Psalms 119.105 says, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path to show us the next steps. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, all of it is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Read all about this awesome God we serve. 
Get a good devotional. A devotional is a little Bible study book that kind of helps you go through the Word of God a little easier and dig more out of it. If you need help finding one, talk to me, talk to any of us. We'll help you get one. Read all about this awesome God we serve. Some other things you can do to get to know God better so you can trust him more. Keep coming to church and get into a growth group, right? It says in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, it says, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. You're at church. You're doing it. Keep coming back, right? Get with people that can encourage you to get to know God better. And then you'll find God using you to encourage others to get to know God better. Another thing we do to get to know God better is pray. Talk to God. James 4.8 says, when you draw close to God, God will draw close to you. So we can trust him more when we get to know him better. But here's another thing that we got to do. Not just get to know him better, but we have to decide what you will stop worrying about intentionally. You decide what you're going to stop worrying about. Here's what I mean. Make a list of everything you're worrying about, right? Anything that has to do with people, places, things, whatever. Make a list. And then with the help of someone you trust, someone who has a, a pretty good godly perspective, someone who can tell you the truth and not just try to tell you what you want to hear, take that list of things that you're worrying about and ask them to help you put them into two columns, Right? Put them into two columns. The one column is called what I can control, and the other one is called what I can't control. Pretty simple, but yet it's very difficult. Because when you have a tough time deciding which goes into which column, right, you're going to need some help, and we need to ask God to help us. In James 1.5, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom... You should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. He doesn't mind a bit if you ask him, God, this one on this list, does it go here or here? He doesn't mind. He wants to help you figure this stuff out because he's not going to take anything from you by force. God's not that way. He's going to wait until we give them to him our hopes and fears. He's gonna wait until we humble ourselves, realize that we in fact are not God and we cannot make it through this life without a power greater than ourselves, this being the power of God in our lives. Can't do it. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. How awesome is it that Jesus meets us in our fears, not after we perfected them, in them. Isaiah 41, 13 says, for I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear. I will help you. God made a way for our hopes and fears through Jesus. And the central message of this song is that God came to earth in meekness. And likewise, we must receive him in meekness. As a matter of fact, the second verse of the song says, for Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above. While mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wondering love. O morning stars together proclaim the holy birth and praises sing to God the King and peace to men on earth. Another important truth found in this carol from scripture reminds us of the fact that God chose to enter the world as a helpless infant. 
He came to earth silently, humbly, as a helpless baby. Why? Why didn't God choose to send Jesus as a military or political powerhouse, right? Well, look in Hebrews 4.15. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet was without sin. Jesus came not only to save us, but to humbly identify with our struggles and sympathize with our pain. Not put his thumb on us because we're in pain, but to sympathize with our pain. Listen, who understands you more? If you're struggling with something, who understands you more? The person over here that's read about your struggle has heard it talked about on Dr. Phil or Oprah, right? Or the other person over here who has walked through the very same struggle. Who's gonna understand you more? This guy. Because he's been through it. Because he can understand. That's Jesus to us. We have a king, a savior that can understand all we go through and sympathize with us to help us get beyond it. The third verse of the song says this, tells us even more how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given so God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. God took on flesh not to show us how God would live on this planet, but to show us how we can live in humble obedience to God. The power of Jesus Christ is a power that brings peace to every heart that receives him. And on that first Christmas morning, the day that, that Jesus was born into the world, there in the hay lay the hope of all mankind. I love that image. I love that. Emmanuel, God with us, come to earth for us. The last verse of the song says, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend on us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel, the Messiah born to reign for eternity and to take on yours and mine and all of mankind's hopes and fears through all the years. Now listen, as we move towards our time of communion, I wanna give you one more aspect of the town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem in Hebrew, and I'll do my best, Bethlehem in Hebrew is pronounced Bet-lehem. And it literally means house of bread house of bread isn't that cool in John 6 35 we read then Jesus declared I am the bread of life whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty because bread nourishes the physical body but the bread of life feeds our souls when Jesus, the bread of life, enters in, he meets all of our hopes and all of our fears right there. And when we trust him, we will hunger and thirst no more. 
So as we enter into this time of communion where we reflect and celebrate on what Jesus Christ did when he went to the cross for us, we recognize that the bread of life was born in the city of bread and illustrated his upcoming crucifixion and death by breaking a piece of bread and instructing the disciples to take and eat in remembrance of his body, which is broken for you and for me. Can we stand? We're gonna worship for a little bit before we actually take communion. Let's all stand together and I'm gonna pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for all you did and all you're doing. God, that you could map out history all for us. Father, all to buy us back. You paid such a heavy price. Father, we thank you for this. We love you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week on the Crossroads Grace podcast. If you enjoyed this message, please rate us and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening from. If you are interested in getting involved in our community or want to find out more information, visit us online at crossroadsgrace.org. Thank you for listening to the Crossroads Grace podcast.